Acts chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. When you got it, say so. So. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your presence today. We thank you for your word, my God. We thank you for your grace. God, it is my prayer today that we would be hearers of your word, Lord God, that we would be students of your word. But Lord Jesus, more than that, more than just having a knowledge, a little bit more of what your word declares in our lives, God, I pray for the conviction of your Holy Spirit to come upon our hearts. I pray that as we hear your word today, Lord God, that you would illuminate us, Lord God, that you would empower us and that you would convict us, Lord God, that we would be livers of your word, Lord God, that we would live out the truth of your word, dear Jesus. I pray, God, against every distraction in our minds or in our hearts. I pray, Lord God, against any heaviness on us. And I ask you, Lord God, that your word would go forward as fire upon dry wood in our hearts today. God, may you be glorified in this time. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. So as we continue on in our study in the book of Acts, we're dealing with the, um, the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And the second stop that they make is what this, uh, is what this scripture is talking about. And, the, and, and, um, and so we're dealing with Paul, and as he's going forward and preaching the gospel, and he goes, and when we looked at um, chapter 16, we saw that Paul was in Philippi. When he preached the gospel there, the reason why I want to point that out is because in the beginning of chapter 17, it says a couple of things here. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. The reason why this is important for us is because this gives us some geography of what was going on in that time. And it shows us, again, the commitment that they had. There was, there was 100 miles in between Philippi and Thessalonica. And all of this was done on foot because these people were passionate about the gospel. And today, I want to talk to you about something that is very important. It is entitled the message today, Gospel Power. Because what we see here is, is, is one of my favorite verses in all of the book of Acts. And it, and it is that the, um, in, in verse 6 here it says, But they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And so what, he, what they were communicating was these Jews that were, that these Jewish people that were upset, that didn't want to hear the gospel, they were acknowledging something. While they didn't want to hear anything about Jesus, they could not deny the fact that Jesus, through these preachers, was turning the world upside down. There was the power of the gospel was manifesting despite the fact that there were haters, despite the fact that there were those that didn't want anything to do with Jesus. The gospel was doing something amazing. And for us today, it's important for us to realize that above anything else that I could tell you, the most important thing is that we desperately need a mighty move of the Spirit of God in our days. We need to see God's presence and God's power demonstrated through the preaching of the gospel, the power power of God that is able to save people, that is able to save and deliver families, the power of the gospel that is able to change cities, the power of the gospel that is able to change and transform nations, and the reality is that the only way that that is going to happen, it is when we as the people of God begin to read the scriptures with fresh eyes and a fresh heart and realize that what we are reading and what we are seeing is the truth and the power of God, that it is the heart of God that is revealed for us and that God God still wants to transform lives and turn our world upside down. 
The only way that that happens is when we really grasp that. I told you before when we started in the book of Acts, please don't go to sleep and be like, oh, we're getting a good history lesson or we're learning that there was 100 miles between here and there. That's good for us to understand some things and hopefully it stirs within us because some of us won't walk one mile to church. Hello. Some of us won't walk across the street to impact someone's life. These people walked 100 miles. They were, they were doing something. They walked 30 miles to one city, 30 miles to the next, 40 to the next, and they made a stop, and they began to preach the gospel because there was a desperation in their hearts, and they understood that if they didn't preach the gospel, these people were not going to hear the gospel. Here's the truth today, and the reason why I say that we desperately need to see a fresh demonstration of the power of the gospel is because modern Christianity has been reduced to a type of God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Now, I know some of you have heard that, and you thought that was in the Bible. It is not. Hello. I know it's a cute saying, and, you know, you got, in other words, you know, if people are trying to tell you, you need to get up and do something. I agree, you need to get up and do something, glory to God. But here's the thing. The thing is that it's not just about what you do. It is about what God has done and what God wants to do through you. It is about his power, but Christianity has been reduced to that. So if we're not, you know, we, we, we reduce that, and when, I, and when I say reduced to that, it is not that we should be inactive. But it is that we need to recognize the power of Almighty God. And the reason why I continue to communicate the gospel and continue to preach that is because we need to understand its power and its implication for our lives. Because if not, then we're only looking at Christianity from that place or the other place. It is like God has become a life coach. Hello. He's our, he's our life coach in the sky, right? He's our, he's our holy therapist. Hello. And, and he understands where we are, and he understands what we are going through, and he is right there with us in all of this. But my question is, does your God and your understanding of him take you beyond him realizing and recognizing and understanding where you are? And does it, and does it give you a hope that he is able to liberate you from where you are and bring you to where he wants you to be? Do, do, do we see God as just a God who is there listening to us, rubbing our back when we're praying and we're crying? Or do we see ourselves speaking to the creator of the universe, God of heaven? Do we see ourselves speaking to the one who is really able to change hearts? See, see when, what, what happens is a real thing that happens to a person when they experience Jesus is there is a deep and powerful transformation that takes place. And when that occurs, when you come to God, you're not coming to him like some religious relationship where you just talk to someone that you know that he's listening but you don't know his power but when he's changed you you come to him and your prayer life changes your faith changes because of what because you understand what he's done what happens is the black you know the black lettering on your bible or the red lettering it comes to life because you realize I'm not reading a dead book, but I'm reading living words of a living God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think according to the power that works in us. It is the power of the gospel that we need to see in our days. And my prayer is that as we look at these scriptures, that our hearts are checked. And that we recognize that, listen, Christianity is not something that's just, you know, you help yourself. God is going to help you. It's God is not just some life coach who has some really good principles. Let me give you 10 of them today so you can go, help, go home and live them out. Listen, I have one principle, and that is be transformed by the gospel every day. That is the one principle that I want to live by, that I try to live by, is that every day that as I meditate on his word, that as I seek his face, that my heart is more pliable and that I become more and more like him. Because what I realize is that no matter what, I may get the principles right. I may miss step two of, of all seven. But here's the reality. God doesn't miss a step. God's power is able. God is able to change us and transform us. And if we want to see the power of the gospel, then we've got to be being transformed by the power of the gospel. The Bible tells us in the book of Jude, it says that we must contend for the faith, that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. In other words, that we are supposed to be those on the front lines of battle when people are communicating erroneous truth in the name of God. We should be there to confront that and to contend for the truth. But can I tell you something? We're not just called to contend for, you know, wise words and to have all the wise cliches and all the wise sayings. We're not just supposed to contend to win arguments, but we are supposed to contend for the gospel. We are supposed to contend for the gospel that will bring change and transformation to lives. 
And I'll say this as we move on to our first point. The gospel still has the power to turn the world upside down. It still has the, the same power that is here that we see in the book of Acts where these people, listen, I love this because it wasn't the apostles who were saying this. It wasn't somebody who loved Jesus that was saying this. It wasn't someone who was trying to make the name of Jesus known. It was someone who was trying to accuse the Christians of being wrong and doing things that were out of line. And they gave the greatest declaration that I could imagine that God's word, God's gospel was turning the world upside down. Somebody who hated God, didn't want anything to do with the God that was being preached, the Jesus, the Savior, the Christ that they were waiting for. They said it. They're the ones who communicated it. And so their words are the words that should stir us and say, if God was doing that then, why can't he do it today? Why can't he do it today? He can. The only hindrance would be us. The only hindrance would be us. That we wouldn't believe that he could do it. And, and, and see, we can't say that we believe he can do it if we're not on mission with him. We can say, oh, yeah, I believe God can do that through him. I, be, I believe God can do that, yes, but, but there's no buts. If you believe, you believe, and you move forward, amen? You move forward in the truth of what God wants us to move forward in. So say this with me. The gospel condemns or corrects false beliefs. So the first thing that we see here when we look at the book of Acts chapter 17 is the Apostle Paul goes and the scripture says in verse 1 that he goes to Thessalonica and he goes to the synagogue of the Jews. You know that that's his modus operandi. He, everywhere that he goes, he looks for a synagogue if there's one there, meaning that there were at least 10 Jewish men that were able to gather. That's how a synagogue was formed. And so they weren't able to do temple worship like they did in the Old Testament because of, of the way that the kingdom was split right now. So when they were in these different cities, the Jewish people still wanted to worship God. So they begin to go into these synagogues and they have prayer, reading of scripture, ex, um, um, exposition of the scriptures. And so Paul goes, finds, the, fi finds the, the synagogue there. Verse 2 tells us, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them for the, from, from the scriptures. And so we know for sure that for three weeks straight, for three weekends in a row, the apostle Paul went into the temple and he began to reason with them. The Bible says that he began to, he reasoned with them, which is the word, um, dialogomai, which is in the Greek, and, it, and it's where we get our word dialogue. And so what Paul did for these three weeks is that he went in there, he sat down, he had conversation with them. He wasn't necessarily preaching hardcore, he was having conversation. He was asking them questions, being asked questions. They were answering, they were going back and forth. That's the way that hearts begin to be changed. We begin to ask questions, and we begin to talk about the scriptures, and, and questions begin to be answered. God begins to illuminate our hearts, begins to transform our lives. And so the Apostle Paul, he begins to reason with them. He's, he's having this dialogue with them from the scriptures. The Bible says that he's explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Verse 4 tells us, and some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Barnabas. And then verse 5 is where we get our but. It says, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And so the first thing is Paul's reasoning. He reasons. He begins to share with them the pure gospel. He talks to them and he says what? He's showing them from the scriptures, first of all, this is the Christ. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the Savior. This is the one who has the answers. There's, no, there's not an answer somewhere else. In our days, church, we need to point people to the answer. Are you hearing me? We need to point people to the answer, which is Jesus. Not, not to some book they can read. You need to turn them to Jesus first. When I first became a Christian, I remember I refused. And not because anyone told me this, just the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my heart was, I didn't want to read any book. People were trying to give me books. Read this, read that. I didn't want to read anything. I wanted to read one book. That was the Bible. I wanted to get to know Jesus, and as I got to know him, it was amazing because a lot of stuff I start reading in books later on, I was like, wow, the Bible said, and, and I learned what the scripture said first. I learned what the Bible said about Jesus. And so what Paul does is he points these people to Jesus. And he, and he again gives them a gospel presentation. And we'll look a little bit further into the gospel presentation later on. But here... He tells them simply that Jesus had to suffer for sin. He says that Jesus had to suffer. 
He had to die in our place. This is what he's communicating to them. We get the short version, just the headline version in the Bible. But the fact is, when he's talking about sin, why does Jesus have to die? Well, everybody in here knows that we need to explain why Jesus had to die. He had to die because somebody else was sinning against God. Somebody else had a debt that needed to be paid. And so Jesus had to die. So Paul is pointing out to them, he died. But he doesn't only say death. And I love this in this chapter and throughout the book of Acts, we see something. He points to the resurrection. He says not only did he have to suffer and die, but he was also raised from the dead. Because what happens to us is a lot of times we see the death of Jesus and we, and we forget about the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the death of Jesus lets us know that there is a substitute for our sins. The death of Jesus lets us know that we do not have to try to pay for our own sins because our sins have been paid for us. We can trust in Jesus' death. But the beauty of the resurrection is the resurrection gives us hope over death. It gives us hope over sin. It gives us hope over everything because the one thing that no one can conquer is death, and Jesus did. Jesus rises from the dead, and that thing that, is, that, that has every... Listen, I, I say this often. You know, people are trying to keep themselves as young as possible, and they got all the face creams and keep this lifted and all that glory to God. And, you know, you know how it is. I, I love to say it. Gravity's going to win. Glory to God. But, but not just for your, for your, for your skin that's going to sag one day, but here's the point. The point is, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, y'all, I'm, it's real. It's true or not. I know some of y'all like, my skin is not... It's not it, gravity hasn't won the fight yet. Hello. Y'all look beautiful today, glory to God. But one day, amen, one day gravity is going to win the fight. And it's not just going to stop with your skin sagging. It's going to stop with you being six foot underground. Are you hearing me? And people fear that, okay? It's, it's not just that, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, you just want to be healthy and eat right and work out. I'm not just talking about that stuff. I'm not just talking about people that want to look cute and, you know, keep no, That's not what I'm talking I'm talking about people really fear death. When I was a kid, I remember, man, I mean, I'm still claustrophobic to this day. I like to be in closed spaces. We were doing this race, um, the savage race, and I remember I was talking to Lewis because there's this one obstacle that you got to go through these, you know, these, these tubes, and I was like, dude, I don't know if I can do that, man. And he was like, nah, Bishop, you're going to be all right. So he was such a good brother. He encouraged me through the whole thing. When I got to the tubes, I looked to the other side. I said, I can handle this. So we got through that. But he told me about another race that he did. And, and this other race that he did, it's called Tough Mudder. And in that race, he said that there was this one thing that um, he said, you walked up to this one spot and there was a hole in the ground. And he said, and you saw the hole and you saw people going into the hole. And then like 30 yards down, you saw people popping up. I was like, yeah, bro, I don't think I'm going to do that race with you. <laughs> I'm like, nah, man, I, I, don't, I, I don't think I could crawl under this tunnel and be like, the earth is going to like, you know, anyway, I'm claustrophobic when I was a kid, you know, and, and, I, and I think, I don't know, I'm sure you guys have seen, you know, movies where someone like gets buried, like they're in a coffin, then they're alive, like that is like an amazing fear. I'm like, Lord, please let me really be dead, glory to God. Don't let them make a mistake on me while I'll be hurting. So, you know, but, but I was afraid, you know, I, I was fearful, you know, of dying, not just, you know, being stuck in a coffin because I doubted that that would happen. But I was, I was afraid of dying. I remember I was afraid even more of my, of my mom dying. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a mama's boy, in case you don't know that. And, um, I mean, my mom, I, I used to be like, Mom, man, I just don't want you to die. And I had this fear of death, but then I became a Christian. And no longer do I fear death. I look for, I mean, I don't want to die right now. Hello. But the point of the matter is, is that I look forward to the day that I meet Jesus. Because death is not an end for the Christian. Here's the reality. Death is not an end for anyone. Hello. Y'all hearing me? Death is a continuation of your faith in Jesus or lack thereof. Are you hearing me? And so he tells them about the resurrection. He's like, Jesus died, paid the price for your sin. You put your faith in him, you can also trust in his resurrection. This is the truth. And so fearful, people are fearful of death. And if you fear death today, it is because of one of two things. Either you don't know Jesus or you don't know the truth of the resurrection. Because there's some people that you may know Jesus and you still fear death because you don't really understand the resurrection. The resurrection gives us hope because we're not going to die and be stuck in the ground or, you know, sleeping for eternity. No, no, no. We're going to die and be with Jesus. 
It's a, it's a place that we can rejoice. We don't suffer for eternity. And so Paul communicates this to them. And so what we see here is the Bible tells us that there are some people, in verse 4, that gave their life to Christ, that they committed their life, they were persuaded, the Bible says, and they believed. But then there were some other Jews that were not persuaded. They become envious. And so what we see here is, first of all, in Thessalonica, we see some people accepting the gospel. We see some people coming to Jesus. It's, it's important for us to read these scriptures because we need to understand if we preach the gospel faithfully, some people will submit to Christ. But then there will be other people, they will not. There will be other people that are not going to hear the word. They don't want to hear the scriptures, and so they're going to do everything they can to oppose the scriptures that you are communicating and the gospel that you're trying to preach to them. And so we have some people that are persuaded, and it seems like there was a larger group, or at least a more influential group, who became persecutors. And so what happens is, I said the point or that, we, that you repeated after me, was the gospel condemns or corrects false beliefs. And so what happened was when they began to preach that Jesus was the Christ, there was a false belief Jesus hadn't come. There was a false belief Jesus wasn't the way. There was another way to salvation or we're still waiting on the Messiah. And so when they began to preach the gospel, what the gospel does anytime we preach it is it condemns any belief that is contrary to it. But this is the hope of God and should be our hope is that not only is there condemnation of wrong belief, but that there is repentance and correction. That when we bring forth the truth of the gospel and we clearly communicate the truth, that there is not just a condemnation. If condemnation is the only thing that is left after we have preached the gospel, we have preached the gospel inadequately. Because what should happen is you should feel desperate without God if you don't know him. You should feel 100% separated and condemned and confined to all of hell for all of eternity if I preach the first part of the gospel correctly, which is that we are all sinners and we all owe God because we violate his word continually. But if I continue on and I talk about Jesus dying and his resurrection, then there should be a hope in you that says I don't have to remain in this bondage. I don't have to remain in this condemnation and that is what God wants for all of us is for us to have a hope and hear me he doesn't just want you to have a hope the day you give your life to Jesus but every day that you walk with him you should walk with the hope of the resurrection and the glory of Jesus that is coming and when we do we will become faithful proclaimers of the gospel and so what happens is when God confronts people with their sin through the gospel he wants to correct them he doesn't just want to condemn them amen Second thing I ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, the gospel, the gospel. Confounds, confounds or confirms our theology. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, then the brethren. So what happens is um, these people wanted to persecute the apostles, and they didn't, want, they, they, didn't, they didn't want that to happen. So verse 10 gives us the next place that Paul goes to preach. It says, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. He does the same thing in Berea that he did in Thessalonica. He said there were, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, here's the point. The point is you got to look at this because this is the Bible inspired by God. This is the reason why I said that it seems like there was a greater um, a crowd of people that didn't receive the gospel in Thessalonica because the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to make a difference and say the people in Thessalonica they weren't like the people in Berea so these were different people here God was doing something in all of their hearts but these people in Berea they were different they were more fair-minded or noble-minded in some of your in some of your um, um, scripture in some of your translation it says in that they received the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came, also, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who, con who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come, to him with all speed they departed. And so when the gospel is preached to us, it will either confound or confirm our theology. The Bereans were different, as, as the scripture says, than the Thessalonians. They were more noble-minded. In other words, they had a different mind. They had a different perspective. These are people that love their, their Bible. 
And, and when the Apostle Paul began to sit down and began to reason with them, they began to look at the Bible and say, wait a second, this is what the Old Testament is saying. These scriptures are pointing to this Jesus, and this Jesus that he's talking about has fulfilled all of these scriptures. And so what they did was they sat down and they continued to open the Bible with him. They continued every day. They didn't just come on the synagogue days. This shows a different heart. These people didn't just wait until the Sabbath to come together. They weren't just a religious group. These were people who were really hungry for the truth of God's word. These were people who really wanted to experience the fullness of what God was communicating. And as they did so, they began to turn there. And the scripture says that many of them believed because they were digging into the scriptures. And so when we talk about the word theology, theology, just to, so you can understand what I'm saying, theology is the study of God. So when we talk about theology, that's what we're saying. You know, what's your theology? What's your understanding? What have you studied and understood about God? And when the gospel is presented, it will either confound your study of God and make you understand that your, your understanding of God was way beneath anything that you, really un, that you really thought you understood. There's a book that I encourage any of you to read. It is called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And for those of you that went to Bible college, it's one of the first books that you have to read. And I will tell you right now, I was a Christian for a few years when I read J.I. Packer. And after reading that book, I realized that I didn't know God. I'm just saying, and, 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 it was, and, I, and I don't mean that I wasn't saved. I'm just saying, man, I didn't really know him. Like, I thought I knew him. Like, I thought I, like, yeah, we down. And I started reading his book, and I was like, man, I don't know you like I thought I knew you. And what happens is as we begin to dig deeper into Scripture, as we begin to look deeper into the gospel, our understanding of who God is has to, has to be challenged. And it's not just challenged once. I tell you about that book because that was years ago when I read this, and it's a good place to start. But every time that I begin to sit down and I'm looking into the scriptures, and God just begins to show me his heart and reveal himself to me, reveal his greatness and his love, I become overwhelmed, and I am challenged. And I realize that God is so much greater than I understood yesterday. Amen? And so the reality is this, is that when the gospel is preached, my theology is either going to be confounded or it's going to be confirmed. And so what happens is either it's that I don't, I don't know God, I'm like on the wrong track, in the wrong place. Like when you preach the gospel to someone who is spiritual, hello, Every, everyone's spiritual today. I mean, if, they, if they're not an atheist, they're spiritual, Hello. I'm just saying, that's like, you know, Pastor Robert says that there's two types of people that come into the place, those who are saved, those who are unsaved. Well, you go out there, and there's two types of people. There's the ones that don't believe in God, and there's the spiritual ones. All right? And, and I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just kind of, because we would fall into the spiritual side. The truth is, we have the truth. Amen? Amen. But the point is that everybody's, and, and, and so you talk to people, grew up in church, you know? They don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like I need to be part of an organized religion. Okay, then you don't believe in the Bible. What do you mean, Bishop? What I mean is, I didn't create organized religion. Hello. I didn't organize it. God did. <laughs> I ain't saying nothing. Listen, what I'm saying, what, what you should be telling is, wait a second. The Bible, God is the one who did this. You look at God wanted people to come together. God wanted people to have fellowship and grow and relate. He wanted people to do that. He wanted people to come together in his name and worship him and exalt him. Amen. God is the one that wanted that. And, 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 and it happened to, and, and I mean, God is the one who established the tabernacle. Hello, glory to God. He's the one who established a place of meeting. And then, you know, when they stopped going to the tabernacle, as the church began to grow in the New Testament, what did they do? I mean, they weren't like doing smoke signal services. Hello. I'm just saying, they weren't communicating from afar like passing each other. No, they were coming together. Listen, they were packing out houses. Read, G look, read the gospel, and you'll see there was one place where Jesus was sitting in a house. It was so packed and so full that these people needed to bring the, this person who was a paralytic to Jesus. You know what they did? They went to the roof, tore the roof off the house, and said, Jesus, please touch him because we can't get in. I'm just saying, the point of the matter is, it wasn't, it wasn't man-made design that people get together and worship. It was God who wanted people to get together and worship. But what happens is, when we begin to preach the gospel to those who are spiritual and have all of the answers, what will happen is, they will, their, their understanding of God will be confounded. Whether they reject you or not is not the question. The point is they will come to understand they really don't know God. And if they want to know him, there is one way to get to know him, and that is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And see, people think, well, you know, I get goosebumps. I mean, I've had people that are not Christian. Listen to what I'm going to say right now. I've had people that are not Christian 
that, I mean, they, 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 they do not believe in Jesus like you and I do. It's, they don't believe according to the scriptures. Not about you and I. It's about the scriptures and the Bible and what the Bible teaches on Jesus. That have walked in this church and worshiped with us and told me about the power that they felt while they were in worship. And that makes them think that they're okay with God. Because they sent something great. Listen, here's, listen to me. Did you repent to the one who is great? That's my question. It's not about what you sense. You could have felt all the emotion in the world and you cried and you wept and all of that is great and wonderful. And I will say, yes, you had some kind of encounter with God. But my question is, what did you do to respond to the gospel? Did you put your faith in Jesus or were you satisfied with some feeling? We must constantly be growing in biblical conviction. When we look at the Bereans, what we find is that's the kind of heart that every church should have. That's the kind of heart that every church should have. That we open our Bibles daily, not weekly, that we open our Bibles daily, that we search the scriptures to know Jesus that we search the scriptures to know who he is and to experience him through his word. That's how he wants us to experience him. Primarily, not that I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't want you to experience him in worship. He wants that. Those are amazing experiences. I'm not saying he doesn't want you to experience him through prayer. Amazing experiences. But he wants you to experience him in his word as well. The foundation of my experience has to be in the scriptures. See, we talk about experiencing God in prayer, experiencing God in worship, experiencing God in scriptures. You know where else God wants you to experience him? He wants you to experience him as you share him with others. That's an amazing place to experience God. Some of us never take the time to do that. We want to experience him in prayer. We want to experience him in worship. Some of us are willing to experience him in the word. We want all of these personal time experiences. Amazing, very important. But my question is, are you walking with him to experience him as he preaches through you to someone else? As he proclaims himself through you to someone else. Because that's another place that we should be experiencing him if we want to see the power of the gospel manifesting in our lives. The Berean church was a church that was studying their Bible. They were reading their scriptures. They were learning who God was according to the Bible, not just their experience. The scripture goes on to tell us that this other group of Jewish people, they heard this. How did they hear this? I have no idea because this was long, miles away from there, and they still heard it. They rose up. Why? Because the enemy is always looking to disturb or distract the people of God and to try to hinder what God is doing. And so they come from another city to do what? To bring a hindrance. And so what do they do? They say, you know, we preach the gospel to them. They move on to the next city. And the third thing I ask you to repeat after me is say this. Say, the gospel confronts our idolatry. Look at verse 16 with me, and we'll read to verse 34, and then we'll go back through. Verse 16 says this, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Now, here's the thing. The first thing that, 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 that the scripture says here in verse 16 is that it says, Now, while Paul waited for them, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to get there. He's in Athens. This, it says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. As he walked through this city in Athens, and so as he goes to this place, he sees all of these idols. Lewis and I were talking about it, and he was going to try to find it. He wasn't able to find it, but he was telling me about um, a reenactment that they did on maybe the Discovery Channel or something like that, and it talked about Athens during this time. And 
what I'll say later in a moment as, when, when, as we continue to read here, Athens wasn't at its peak. It wasn't at its high place. It was, it, it was, it was actually, you know, coming down from where it used to be. But it still was this place where they had these amazing idols and these figures that were there. And when you walked in there, it, was, it, was, it, it could have been intimidating for the Apostle Paul to be like, man, these people have these idols. I mean, they had altars all over the place. And, and so when he walks into this and he sees all of the things and the objects of worship, his heart is stirred within him because he realizes these people are, there's something that they're trying to get to. They're, they're trying to get to God, but they're lost in worshiping these idols. They think they have it all together. And so these people are there, and they're the type of people, they, they called him a babbler, which it, mean a, it meant a seed picker. And what, that, and what they were saying about him was it, a seed picker was one who you know, took a little bit from here, took a little bit from here, put it all together, and tried to put their own twist on it and make it their own. And so what they were saying is, hey, man, this guy's got some new religion. He's talking a little bit about some stuff over here, a little bit about some stuff over here. We've kind of heard some of this and some of that. And see, that's how religion is. Hello. You go, as you continue to have those conversations and you continue to talk to those people that you're trying to share the gospel with and they'll talk to you about stuff and you'll hear them be like, you know, well, that sounds pretty much like this religion. All religions are the same. Listen, God has put morality on the hearts of all men no matter what religion they are. Hello. And so all of us are going to agree on some fundamental stuff like murder is wrong. Hello. Like that, that, that's just, no matter what you are, murder is wrong. Why is that wrong? Because the law said it? No. Because there's something inside of you that God has placed there that you know this is wrong. Amen. There's certain things. Listen, the, 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 most, the, the most unsaved person you can think of, I guarantee you, they can't stand liars. Now, you know, you just had a, you had, you had a brain flash of those people. I can't stand liars. They don't love Jesus. They don't love the Bible, but they can't stand liars. Why? Because there's something inside of us that says that's wrong. It may be okay for them to do it sometimes. Hello. But what I'm saying is there is something really inside of us that we know certain things. And so there are certain things that are the same. But the one thing that separates Christianity from all other religion is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is who he is. And so everyone, I want you to get this, everyone on the planet struggles with idolatry. Everyone in this room, let me make it personal. <laughs> everyone in this room struggles with idolatry. Notice I said everyone. I didn't say everyone sitting in front of me. I said everyone in this room. I'm included in that. Every one of us struggles with idolatry. Some of us, we, we just recognize it sooner than others. Hello. Some of us really, you know, we're, we're, we're battling against that. Others of us just give into it. Why is it that we struggle with idolatry? Because we were created to worship. Every one of us by design was created to worship. But here is why we struggle with idolatry. The book of Romans chapter 1, you can write this down. You don't have to turn there right now. But the book of Romans says some things when God is talking about creation in general. He says, he says that we, creation, change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And so what, what, what happens to us is we begin to worship things rather than God. We begin to obsess over things because you know what? Sometimes we can control things. I gave you the example of vehicles. You know, you can, you can control. I mean, you can't control when it's going to rain. Hello. But you can control not hitting that puddle. Glory to God. You can control, you know, when you wash your car and you can keep it shining and looking around. And listen, there's nothing wrong with a clean car. Glory to God. If you want to help me out, please feel free. Glory to his name. <laughs> I'm just saying, the point is that some of us obsess. We obsess over stuff, and we, and we have these idols in our lives. We can control, you know, our family. Some of us, our idol is our families. Having the perfect family, there is no such thing. But we want to make it look like that. Hello? We worry, we worry more about what people think about us than really how we are doing as parents. Hello? As long as our kids look like they're right, it's all good. Hello. They can be crazy in the house. They can act a fool. But when people come over, they got to act right. Right? When they go out in public, you don't move. Right? 
don't know about you, but you know, I, I don't know. I don't know about parents these days, but I, I know. I know about my mom. Before we went into someone's house, she was like, "Look, you sit next to me. You don't ask for nothing. You don't move anywhere until I tell you." I don't care who's playing. I don't care who's doing what. You sit next to me. You know what my, me and my sister used to do? And then we, we had other brothers and sisters that came along. But at first, it was me and my, my, my sister. We would just sit right next to mommy. Hello. Until she said we could go. And then we were real careful where we went and what we touched because we knew we would get a beat down. Hello. There was no sparing the rod in those days. Glory to God. I know today we, we're the timeout generation. But anyway, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But, he, but the reality is, oh my God. every one of us struggles with idolatry. We have different idols. Our job can be our idol. The money we make can be our idol. The way we appear can be idols. I mean, different, different things can be idols. One, one preacher said that America worships their stomach. Hello. Said, look at all these facts. He said, yeah. He said, yeah. And, and I, I don't know. I can't remember where I heard it. it. Was from YouTube somewhere, and it was. I wasn't even the person speaking directly. It was a recording, and they were just talking about how you know you look at all of these things. You know, you guys talk about idols being in Africa and idols being over here and over there. But look at when you pull over here, them golden arcs. Hello, like your worship. Yes, I found the arcs. You know, I mean, I'm just saying. I, I'm just, we worship stuff, man. I, I mean, we do, and so we struggle with idolatry. And so we are given the opportunity to repent because we do what? We change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like man. Look at it. It goes deeper, though. It says we exchange the truth for the lie. The truth is there's only one true God. The lie is God is everywhere. Every path leads to him. As long as you're doing right and you're not hurting anyone, you're okay. That's not true. Because I will tell you who you are hurting above all things. It is yourself because you are deceiving yourself more and more into believing all you got to do is live right. As long as I'm not hurting anyone. It's not about hurting anyone. It's about Jesus died on the cross for you because you can't save yourself. Bottom line. Nice, and, and that's for everyone. And then it says, lastly, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So as I said, Athens was not in its prime, but it was still an epicenter for education. It was a big place for education. That's why these people used to sit around and they would just talk about new stuff. Philosophy was really big there. Culture was really big there. Pluralism was obviously there because they had idols all over the place. Any God you served, you could find that God in Athens. I think one of the writers in one of the commentaries that I said, it was, he said it was easier to find an idol in Athens than a person. That's how filled with idolatry this place was. It was easier to find a false god to worship, an altar to worship some god, than it was for you to find a person there. And what happens to us is that our heart should be provoked the same way that Paul's was. When we look at the idolatry of our days, when we see people that are worshiping created things rather than creator God, our hearts should be stirred. It doesn't mean that we need to be condemning, and we'll see the way Paul dealt with this. Because the Bible says that Paul did some things. The first thing was he chose two places that he was going to speak the gospel. The first one, his regular place, the synagogue. The second place, the marketplace, which tells us that the gospel should be preached in two places always. It should always be preached among religious people. And we are religious people whether we want to say it or not. We have a religion. We have a set of beliefs that we go by. So we are religious. It doesn't mean that it does not mean that we are defined by religion. Yes, we're defined by relationship with Jesus. And that's what sets our religion apart. Nonetheless, it is a religion. So here's the point. The point is, we as religious people, we need to hear the gospel. Two reasons. Number one, we who really believe in Jesus need never forget that our dependence is in him. That our hope is in him. Number two, there are people that sit among us that are religious but not relationship-wise. Hello. They come to church because someone asked them to. They're here because they have to be. But they don't know Jesus and they need to hear the gospel. And so it's important for us to make sure. There's some people, my brother, he put a post on Facebook. He said, why you go to church if you don't believe the Bible? And so I responded to him. I said, maybe they're trying to figure it out. Hello. And he responded with some other stuff. We won't get into that. But here's the point. The point is, there are some people that are coming to church trying to figure things out. That's the reason why you continue to preach the gospel. Because they may not get it the first time. They may not get it the 50th time. Hello. 
But the 51st time that you decide, I mean, I've done this 50 times, I'm not going to do it again, that'll be the time they get it. And so it's important for us that we care enough that we share the gospel. And so in the church, among religious people, don't, you, com- you continue to communicate the gospel. And then the second place is in the marketplace, which means that it shouldn't just be preached in the church, but we should be going out there. Wherever we work, wherever we live, wherever we work out, wherever it is, we should be there. Not just having casual conversations, not just talking about sports or the weather or, 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 or clothing or cars or children, but we should be talking about Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing as children of God. It should be natural for us to share the gospel and communicate. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. And there were two leading groups of, or philosophies that were there at this particular time. And we see them as they come up. And the reason why I want to bring them up is because they're akin to some of the things that we see today. The first one were the group of the Epicureans. And this was one group, and their belief was pleasure. That, that's what they were. They were like, if it felt good, do it. Their truth was, was by experience, not because it was said in the Bible, but did it feel good? If it felt good, if it felt right, that's how we were going to live life. So that was their highest aim to experience pleasure. And then there were the Stoics, the total opposite. It's funny that these two groups are the ones that are there because one of them teaches self-indulgence and the Stoics, they taught self-mastery. They talked about self-denial. Their thing was come to a place where you become indifferent to the things of life. In other words, for the, for the Epicurean, he wanted to experience all of the good things. He wanted to have all of the highs, and happiness was the highest goal. For the Stoic, it was different. They were like they wanted to be indifferent. They wanted to not be moved by the good nor be moved by the bad. So you have one group, they were saying enjoy life. The other group, endure life. Our group, enter into life. So one group is over here. Everything, joy, you want want to experience, you want to have all of these things. The other group is saying, nope, you shouldn't be striving after any of that. You should become indifferent, you know, because you become so, you know, into just this is what life is. But then God calls us to enter into life, to experience real life. And how do we enter into life? It's by coming to know Jesus. It's by entering into the one who gave his life for us. Paul confronts everyone, everyone. The Bible says anyone who would come in the marketplace, he was talking to them. They wanted to hear some new stuff, so Paul was bringing it to them. Let's look at verse 22, and we're going to see how Paul's message was. Because the scripture says this. It says, for all the Athenians, I mean, in verse 20, let's go back to verse 20, I'm sorry. It says, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So he brings them in verse 19 to the Areopagus. So this is like the council of the city. So Paul goes, he preaches the gospel to everyone, and he gets brought behind the, before the highest court in the city. He wasn't being brought there because he had done something wrong. He was being brought there because these are the people who made judgments, and they were like, you know what? We want to hear what you're teaching. Because remember, they had all of these idols. They figured, we're going to add another idol. We're going to add another God to the, to, to the list of gods because this guy's bringing something new. And so they wanted to hear what he was talking about. And so verse 22, we'll start there. It says, then Paul, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. So now this is him preaching the gospel. And before we go through this, I want you to see, and I'll pause momentarily just to point out the different things that he does. But this is how he starts the gospel presentation. He doesn't start with them saying, you guys are a bunch of idolaters. He doesn't start with them like insulting them. He, what he does is he communicates to them something that was true. He wasn't lying to them. He said that you guys are religious. He said that there was some kind of fear of God, something, not the fear of the right God, but there was some. The reason why they have, and you'll see in the next verse down, they have this altar to the unknown God because they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss anyone. They're like, you know what? We, we serve a sun God, a moon God, a dark God, a light God, a black God, a purple God, a pink God, a red God. We got the alligator God and the, and the elephant God. They had all these gods. Hello. All of these different gods there. And they said, you know what? But we may have missed one. And so what we want to do, we're going to put an altar there just so in case we missed him, we got him. So we're just going to say the unknown God. So he starts off communicating to them. In other words, you guys are looking for something. You guys are seeking for something. And listen, this is important for us because there are some people that they're bound in the wrong religion, truly seeking the truth. 
You think they're being hard-headed. You think they're being sarcastic. And maybe they are. You think that they're being flippant and they really don't want to. And maybe that's all true. But did you ever think maybe God wants you to pray harder? Maybe God wants you to study more diligently? Maybe God wants you to love them more faithfully because they really want the truth and you have it. But you're not just going to be able to come and tell them one time and they're going to get saved. But they're going to have to engage you in conversation. Did you ever think about that? I mean, just maybe that might be the situation. There's some people, their hearts are just hard. They're refusing the gospel. They don't want to hear it. And you know what? Here's the thing. If we're just faithful, because I was that guy. I didn't want to hear the gospel. I didn't want to, I didn't want to change my life. I want to continue doing what I was doing. But somebody continued to be faithful. My grandmother continued to pray. My mom continued to pray. They, listen, they brought everybody. They had prayer meetings in my house. Hello, somebody. They were doing everything to try to get me saved. They had a prayer meeting in my house one day. This is no joke. They had a prayer meeting in my house, and I told you all this before, maybe, and maybe I didn't, but you'll know this now. I didn't really speak Spanish very well when I first got saved, so I I really didn't understand Spanish. So they had a prayer meeting. Well, it was a Spanish church, so guess what? The prayer meeting was in Spanish. So I sat there, you know, respectful because, you know, I, I was joking the other day. I said I was a different kind of gangbanger than, you know, most of my friends. I was really respectful because I got my butt beat. Hello. By my mom, not by anyone else. And so what happened was I was, you know, I wouldn't walk into someone's house and just act like I own the place. I did not. I knew that because I was taught right. And so I'm sitting down next to my mom, really quiet, really, you know, just with my head down, not humble, just, you know, respectful because I knew. And so when, when the prayer meeting's done, they decide they're going to preach the gospel. They preach the gospel in? There you go. And so did I understand what was being said? Absolutely not. I sat there and I yesed in the death. I shook my head, yes, yes, yes. At the end of it, he looked like I was engaged. I was just lost. But the point was, he's like, do you want to accept Jesus? And I was like, I don't understand what you're saying. And so my mom is like, he said, do you want to accept the Lord? And I was like, I guess. And so they prayed for me. They thought they wanted me to Jesus. They didn't. I was going out to get high as soon as this prayer meeting was over. The point of the matter is, they did everything they could to bring me to Jesus. They were faithful. And glory to God, one day it worked. Hello. It didn't work in the Spanish prayer meeting. Hello. It didn't work in the service that I went to. But Jesus came through. But you know what? I would have never met him if someone would have just gave up on me and been like, man, he's just hard-headed. He's hopeless. They didn't give up. And so listen, be that faithful friend. Be that faithful person who loves to the end until you see that. Listen, until that person breathes their last or they bow their heart to Jesus. That's the kind of person you should be. I'm just saying. And so we see here in verse 22, I mean in verse 23, after he introduces the whole message, he's like, I see that you all are religious. He says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You see, he understood something. They didn't know who the real, true God was. But at least there was some thought of him in their minds. They didn't know. They were, they were ignorant, like many people are today. It says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So, so far, he has introduced them to, do, to two aspects of God. The first one is, in the beginning, God creates. Who is that? Creator. He introduces them to the creator God. Remember, he's talking to people that are not fluent in the scriptures. So he starts with the general, the general revelation of God. God is creator. In other words, he is the one who you owe homage to because of all of this that you see. He's the one. The second thing that he points out to them, he says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So what is he saying here? He's saying first, he's creator God. Second, he's provider. He is the one who provides. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. And so the first thing is creator God. The second thing is provider God. The third thing is governing God. And what he does here is he removes any mindset that they could feel like they were elite. Because he says all men, they're all equal because he created all of them. 
and he appointed their times and their dwellings. And why does he do this? Verse 27 says, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope. And when you look at that word grope, what he's saying is that they would reach out after him. The picture is someone who is in the dark, who, is, who cannot see. The way that you do that, if any, I mean, if anyone in here um, has, has ever seen, you know, like, you know, um, shows that have like firefighters and stuff like that, and David can appreciate this, when you go to fire academy, one of the tests you got to do, you got to be in this dark room that, you know, sometimes had a smoke, stuff like that, you got to drag someone out of that room. How do you do that? You grope. How do you grope? You feel your way around. You're not just going to walk in there like, hey, man, I got this. It's dark, but I can see in the dark. No, you are not man of steel. Hello. I'm just saying, okay, you are not going to do it. You're going to grope. You're going to find a wall, and you're going to walk around that room, or else you're going to get turned around in the room and get stuck somewhere in the room. And that's what's happened with a lot of people. They don't want to grope. They don't want to humble themselves before God. They don't want to recognize that they don't have all the answers. They don't want to recognize this. And so it's our job to pray that they would humble themselves and that they would find their way to God through what? The preaching of the gospel. The purpose that God puts men in the places and times is so that they would grope for him and find him. God, this is so awesome. God wants to be found. Oh, you should have got excited right there. God, thank you. God wants to be. God doesn't want to just be this pie in the sky somewhere that he's not part. He wants to be found by those who are lost. He wants, listen, and, and when I say that, listen, he, he, he reaches out for us. He draws us with his spirit. So what? So we can find him. That's why we get confused. We're like, well, did he find me? I found him. It happened all simultaneously. We were all found, glory to God. The point is he's the one that reached us. He's the one that grabs us. Absolutely. But he wants us to pursue him and find him. He does that for what? So that way we can find him. Though he is not far from each, from each of us, for in him we live and move and have, our own, and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are all his offspring. It doesn't mean that we are children of salvation. It means that we are children of creation. There is a difference. Don't think, well, you know, someone will point to scripture. Well, we're all his offspring, meaning we're all his children. Yeah, but there are some children that are rebellious, bad children. Hello. I'm just saying. And guess what? All of us are born into that rebellion and bad children syndrome. Hello. And so we're all, yes, we're all born. And, 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 and he points out again, he's, he's provider. Everything we have, we live, we move, we have our being in him. And what does he do again? First of all, he tells them he doesn't go off on them about their idolatry alone. He points out they're religious and they have some kind of fear of God. And then he goes and he quotes one of their philosophers. He quotes what they're saying and says, look, this is what they say and, and this is true. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So what does he say here? He's saying, look, you're created in his image. Do you think that you can create something that represents him and worship that and that be him? No. He doesn't dwell in temples. He's not like gold or silver. He is the creator. He is the one true God. In verse 30, he says this. He says, truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who, has, who he has ordained. He, he has given assurance to this all by, the, by raising him from the dead. And so he points out all of these wonderful things about who God is. He, he, ta he talks about God being creator. He talks about God being provider. He talks about God being governor. And now he talks about God being savior. That's the gospel. He overlooked the ignorance. He overlooked the ignorance of your idols. He overlooked that with the hopes that today you'll repent of your sin. With hopes that today that you will turn from your idols. That's what he's telling them. And that's what God tells you today if you're a worshiper of something else other than God. With the hopes that we would all turn. And he, and, he, and he drives the point home. He doesn't just say, so you will turn and have a good day. He said, at the end of all days, God will judge all of creation. In other words, all of us will stand before God in judgment. 
We will either stand before him on the side where we are going to be granted access into his kingdom and be rewarded for our works, or we will be judged on the side where we did not put our faith in him, where we did not trust in him, and we will experience an eternity separated from him and suffering in the pits of hell. This is the truth of what Paul, of what Paul is communicating to him. He's saying, listen, he's going to judge everyone. And he made this known and made it a sure fact because Jesus rose. Because Jesus rose. That's how we know that we're going to be judged. The sad part is that we see here as he goes on in verse 32, it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul de departed from among them. However, some men joined him, believed, and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It's sad that he preached this message to so many people, and some of them mocked him and were like, oh, resurrection, you lost us there. They couldn't believe in the supernatural, who God was, the Almighty was, but at least they said, well, we'll hear you again on this. That's how some people would do to you. We'll hear you again on this, and then they never want to talk to you again. It was happening back then, too. But the beauty of this is that some people responded in faith. And so here's my, my, my closing question for you, or here, here's a closing statement. In a pluralistic culture, we must expect rejection and ridicule, but we must also expect God to manifest his power when we are faithful to preach the gospel. See, some of us, we have more faith that we're going to be rejected more faith that we're going to be ridiculed, more faith that we are going to experience something negative as a result of us preaching the gospel, we don't have enough faith that God's power remains the same today. And so my closing question is, are we devoted to the power of the gospel personally as well as publicly?